The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Without government, who will build the roads? If you've ever suggested a public policy that sounded slightly libertarian, you've probably been met with an objection like this. So you think schools shouldn't be tax-supported and government-run? Well, you must be in favor of widespread ignorance, then. Why do you hate education, huh? You don't favor socialized medicine, you monster. You obviously want people to die. Yeah, okay, that's what I want. People to die. Some of them, anyway. My name is Gordon Runyon. Thank you for downloading this episode of Setting the Record Straight. Another place we get challenged like this is in relation to the poor. Theonomists get questions like, how would the poor be taken care of in a theonomic society where there are no tax-funded entitlements? I'm going to take a stab at answering that question here. How would a theonomic society deal with poverty? First, to answer the question, we should define our terms. I take it for granted that if you were listening to this, you probably have some idea what theonomy is and what we mean by speculating about a theonomic society. So I won't take a lot of time here. Very basically, theonomy is a word that means God's law, and theonomists are those who believe that God's law is authoritative in whatever area of life it addresses. Further, we think it addresses everything. Theonomy says that God's commandments, his law word found in both testaments, should be the rule we follow in every area of life. And yes, we understand that the earthly ministry of Christ brought in some changes to that older law, specifically in the area of temple, priesthood, sacrifices, promised land, etc., A theonomic society is what we look forward to when the preaching of Christ's gospel and the discipling of nations has resulted in whole cultures and and countries overtly seeking to honor God by keeping his law. This will include how they write their constitutions and how they seek to govern themselves. This will also include how these societies deal with their most vulnerable citizens, including the poor, Now, it's important for us to define what we mean by poor as well. Our society tends to see poverty in a completely subjective manner. Poor changes across times and cultures. We tend to think, I may not be able to define poverty, but I can tell you what rich is. It's whoever has a dollar more than me. I have run into Christian ministries to the poor whose stated goal is to make sure that the poor children get some decent presents on Christmas morning. In addition, my day job routinely brings me to the door of poor people several times each day. As they answer my knock and I get a peek inside, I have become convinced that all the kings of the earth who lived in Bible days would be stunned into astonished silence at the miraculous opulence that our poor people live in. The greatest threat to their health tends to be the amount of extra weight they're carrying. I believe the Apostle Paul was consistent with the rest of Scripture when he wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 
But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now you caught that. With food and clothing we are supposed to be content. Some would argue that shelter is included elsewhere in the biblical definition, and I won't argue against that. For our purposes... Let's define a biblical view of poverty as meaning a lack of food or clothing or shelter. As soon as we get our terms defined, we can state that a theonomic society would feel no impulse to throw money at people who don't meet the biblical definition of poor. And with that idea, we immediately save about half of the current American federal budget. Secondly, we need to understand that from a biblical standpoint, poverty is not morally or ethically neutral. There is a cause and effect relationship between disobedience to God and poverty. Now this is not an ironclad one-to-one relationship, but it is a solid general principle, as we will see. When God tossed our first grandparents out on their loincloths, he informed them of a new curse upon the ground that would result in scarcity. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Genesis three seventeen and 18. They had lived in a garden that yielded all kinds of great food for them naturally. Now they were being sent to live on a land that would rather yield weeds than anything of real value. They could eat from it still, but it would cost them a lifetime of painful toil. When we leave the earth alone, it tends toward inhospitableness toward humans. If we want to eat from it, we must work it. Lack of food, clothing, and shelter go on to be pretty common curses on disobedience, both in the Law and the Prophets. Among other promises of scarcity in response to covenant-breaking, in Deuteronomy 28, for instance, listen to these. You shall carry much seed into the field, and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall not. You shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees, olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. For just one graphic example among dozens to be found in the prophets, listen to the words of Haggai in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 
Thankfully, the concept works in the other direction as well. While disobedience to God earns the curse of scarcity and poverty, obedience receives his blessing. In fact, in his law, God promises that a faithful nation will see poverty eliminated from its midst. Deuteronomy 15.4 But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. So the ethical-judicial connection between poverty and rebellion towards God is a prevalent, firmly established biblical principle. However, there are plenty of examples which go on to prove that this principle, as I said above, is not ironclad, one-to-one. That is, not every instance of poverty represents the judgment of God against a particular man's sin. Job, for instance, was about the best guy you could have run into before Christ, and he suffered through a time of grinding poverty and lack, during which all of his riches were consumed. Ruth the Moabitess is a legitimate hero of the faith, a shining example of diligence, loyalty, and trust in God, and she lived for a time in poverty. Paul recounts days of exposure to the elements and lack of food, and Jesus, who was rich, for our sake became poor. We could multiply examples. Yes, there is a principle that that poverty slams the unrighteous generally. But in the providence of God, according to his own purposes, his own people may suffer for a time with it as well. Conversely, as in Psalm 73, sometimes the wicked prosper for a time. And yes, it is true that sometimes God marches out to battle on behalf of the poor. But these are not the guilty, rebellious poor who refuse to work hard or otherwise do foolish things that destroy their wealth. The poor God goes to bat for are those whose wealth has been unlawfully taken by oppressors in power. There really are poor folks who are poor because of the sins of the rich and the powerful against them. God really is on their side to rescue and defend them, but this, this does not mean that every poor person belongs in that category. The reason I bring this up is that as a theonomist in dealing with poverty, I want to acknowledge the general principles of poverty, along with the exceptions and counterexamples for the sake of saying this. Theologies which exalt the poor as a matter of course, like modern liberation theology, and all other socialistic twisting of scripture, are condemned. Though the righteous may suffer poverty, it is not his poverty that marks him out as righteous. In fact, the biblical view is that his poverty should be seen as an aberration. This would also do away with much pietistic nonsense, which often exalts poverty itself as a virtue to be pursued or to take pride in. But it also does away with the Marxist idea that the reason for poverty is rich people, that the poor are only poor because they are being oppressed. Generally, the principle is that people are poor because they deserve to be. Now, certainly, poverty can happen through oppression, and often does, as in modern Venezuela, where ungodly socialism has resulted, as it always does, in the spread of misery to all its members. The answer to the question, why is this man poor and the one next to him is rich, is not always an easy one. Often it is, but not always. This may seem like a small point, but it really winds up affecting everything as we seek to justly deal with the truly poor around us. We're going to stop for a word from our sponsors now, and when we return, we'll get down to specific answers for dealing theonomically with the poor. 
Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. back to setting the record straight we're talking about how theonomy would deal with poverty having defined our terms and looked very broadly at how the bible speaks of the poor we're ready to provide specific answers so let's ask what would the bible have us do about poor people i think there are several answers maybe you'd come up with more than what i say here but here are some solutions that are found throughout the bible The first theonomic answer to poverty is individual gifts of charity. This is the simplest and probably most automatic way of helping the poor that we think of. It really is a biblical thing, too. We should be doing this. When we see a need and can meet it, we probably should. In fact, a rather ominous warning is attached to the concept of charitable giving in Proverbs 21.13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I said we probably should help. This may sound weird. Only probably? Yeah, there are times when it's neither wise nor right to just pass out free stuff. One of them, for instance, is found in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. There we find that one who refuses to work should not just be handed food to eat. The second strategy would be corporate gifts of charity. You see, it's also right at times for charitable gifts to be pooled and then used as a common resource for the poor. We see this with the Old Covenant tithe, which was to be brought to the storehouse, and also in Acts chapter 6, where common gifts were being distributed to poor widows, and again in several of Paul's letters where he urged churches to lay up gifts for the poor. A theonomic expression of this kind of thing might be a food bank or pantry or a deacon's fund set aside to meet unexpected financial needs. It's important to stop here and note that although these means of addressing poverty are genuinely biblical, the Bible does not stop there as if giving gifts to the poor was the be-all and end-all of ministry to them. But the other listed means of doing so are all different in a specific way. That is, for all the means that follow, the poor person is expected to actually do something productive in order to be helped. 
Related to that, let me just tell you my experience as a small church pastor who has genuinely wanted to help poor people. This is simply true. Anytime you start giving away free stuff, the number of deserving people you are actually helping will quickly be overwhelmed by scammers and leeches crying out, Give! Give! One of the first signs that this has happened and that your charity ministry should probably be scrapped and started over somewhere else is that the poor people you give gifts to start complaining about the quality of the gifts. They are not thanking you, they are telling you how bad you suck for not giving them more. I am not exaggerating, I'm being quite literal. I've seen clothing that was graciously given away then show up with a price tag in the poor person's yard sale. I've had poor transients accept free toys for their children, then inadvertently hit someone up who worked for the same ministry, complaining about how stingy those other people were, saying they refused to give us anything. They say nothing travels faster than a rumor. My experience tells me that's especially true when the rumor is, hey, they're giving away free this and that at the church down the street. Now, I'm not completely jaded on this count. I still give stuff away and feel horrible if I don't sometimes. And I realize I still fall for sob stories. Crying women have an amazing ability to deceive me, apparently. So yes, I'm still a mark, but I want to be a smart mark. Now the third method for dealing with poverty biblically is the zero-interest loan. Lots of folks who don't read carefully think the Bible outlaws what the King James called usury, or charging interest. It doesn't. You can charge it on a loan to a stranger. And I think you can make a biblical case for charging it to an equal as part of a voluntary business arrangement. You just can't charge interest to a brother in need. Now, this doesn't mean you can't demand collateral, by the way. It means you can't deprive the poor person of the legitimate use of his collateral. Unlike the gifts above, the no-interest loan will demand repayment, so the poor person must work, be disciplined, and make it good. The biblical principle here can be found in Exodus 22:25, Leviticus 25, verses uh, 26 and 27, and Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 through 20. The fourth strategy is gleaning. Gleaning, of course, was the provision for the poor in the law of God, which told farmers to purposely leave some of the fruits of the harvest in the field for the poor to go through and pick up. Read the gleaning laws in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, chapter 23, verse 33, Deuteronomy 23, verses 25, and uh, chapter 24, verse 21. We see gleaning in action in the book of Ruth, where it's apparent that gleaning was actually very hard work. How hard will you work, though, if the option is starvation? The poor could glean and therefore eat, but it would not be easy. In a theonomic society, this could still be done in rural areas and even in single-family gardens. But in a city where there are no fields, I believe the gleaning principle could be observed by having a poor man work for you and then by being generous in your, in your repayment for his work. At our little congregation, we have a deacon's fund with a small amount of cash in it. The purpose is to meet pressing financial needs within the congregation, but also for the poor outside the church. It's not a lot, 
but we can put gas in your car to get you down the road or put you up in a cheap hotel for the night, that sort of thing. Well, several times we've had poor folks with really sad stories come begging for money, and we have given it, with the warning that this is a one-time gift. The person is welcome to come back if they need more help, but we will require them to do some work in order to receive it. In eight years, I've had exactly one come back to work. The fifth strategy is that the poor could sell himself as a slave or an indentured servant, basically monetizing his labor for an agreed-upon period, as in Leviticus 25, verses 39 through 43. The hope here is that after laboring in the house of a successful man for a number of years, the poor man will learn profitable habits like diligence and self-discipline, as well as a productive, value-adding skill as a farmer, carpenter, blacksmith, or whatever. When he leaves off from his term of service, he'll be better able to provide for his family. Not only do modern labor laws prevent such things from happening, but in fact the minimum wage law works in exactly the opposite direction, by making it more and more difficult for workers with no skills and no experience to be hired, especially as the minimum wage is increased making it incumbent upon an employer to get the most bang for his labor buck and eliminating his incentive to hire someone without skills and train them. In a theonomic society, these unneeded and frankly unlawful interferences in the marketplace would not exist. So these last several items have all required productive work out of the poor person. Number six, now, the original question was, how would a theonomic society deal with poverty? But we aren't there yet. As much as the theonomic movement has grown in the last 20 years, and it has greatly, we are still a small minority, even among Christians. So in this situation, where the government has no shadow of an inkling of wanting to obey Christ, this doesn't mean that theonomists can sit back and just sip tea while we keep awaiting for the world to change. We must be active agents of godly reform. In this vein, theonomists right now ought to be raising a holy stink over the fact that our society exists with codified institutional rules that are fundamentally unjust and have the effect of keeping some people in poverty. Most of these rules were put in, into place on a wave of sentiment to help the poor or to empower minorities, but they have had the opposite effect because they have gone outside the boundaries of biblical law. This is nothing new. It was true in Bible days as well, where the beneficent rule of the powerful elite wound up draining the poor people completely dry, as in James chapter 5, verses 1-7. through 7. Part of implementing justice must be the, implement, the elimination of injustice. The aforementioned minimum wage laws wind up hurting the exact people the politicians claim to be wanting to help. Entitlements have become enslavements. And frankly, my reading has led me to believe that we might not have inner city ghettos at all if it weren't for all the help that the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development has perpetrated on minorities. Theonomists should combat poverty by working to abolish anti-biblical government intervention in the free market. This would mean the destruction of corporatism as well as welfare slavery. 
Number seven, finally, the truly widespread and permanent solution to poverty is the preaching of the law and gospel of God with the attendant discipling of the nations. As we mentioned above, the modern definitions of poverty keep getting higher and higher. In many places around the world, you can own a cell phone, have an apartment, and a decent television, and still be considered poor, because the definitions have changed even as the economy has grown. There can be no doubt that the standard of living around the world has increased greatly in every place in which the gospel has really gained a foothold over the last 2,000 years. This has included practicing the form of economics clearly outlined in the Bible, that is, private property ownership and lack of economic planning or control, the free market. This has been true even without these places having anything like a majority of Christians. Imagine what will happen when we really are the majority. For a fascinating demonstration of this concept, that the gospel inevitably transforms economics, get the book Truth and Transformation by Vishal Mengelwadi. In a theonomic society, the economy would be free to keep growing. In fact, the sort of freedom we envision would remove the shackles from what now pitifully passes as free. The rising economy floats all boats as it has for millennia now. In summary, let me reiterate. The Bible reveals a variety of reasons why any particular person may wind up in poverty. There is no one-size-fits-all silver bullet. This demands that as we consider the poverty-stricken individual, our ability to apply the ethical judicial stipulations of Scripture to his circumstance will go a long way toward helping us really address his problem. You don't just hand free cash to a man who gambled away his rent money. On the other hand, you don't rebuke people who are willing to work but are on the business end of systematic injustice. God generally blesses the righteous with economic health, but this is not a hard and fast rule. The righteous may have nothing because the wicked stole it from him or because he's made a conscious decision to live with less for the sake of his service to God. But on the other hand, though the righteous may suffer through a season of material lack, that doesn't mean that everyone who lacks is righteous. Because individual situations vary, the law of God gives us several different strategies in dealing with poverty. There are individual and corporate gifts of charity, zero-interest loans, gleaning, and voluntary indentured servitude. In addition, those who care about the poor need to be able to discern institutional injustice and work against it. We also believe that as God's law is honored in a society, that society will see an increase in its overall material blessings, which will tend to mitigate and even eliminate true poverty altogether. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.